So, that being said, we could, you know, talk about this all night, and this is great that we're talking about controversial subjects, because the next part of the night is a controversial subject. And the reason I'm going to be talking about the only begotten daughter of Elohim again is a lot of people have been asking me about it. I can only assume it's because I brought it up on Zen Garcia's show uh, two or three weeks ago, and it got his audience stirring. They've been coming over here and wanting to find out more information about that. Now, some of you who've been in this group for the last several months, we were talking about the only begotten daughter of Elohim as a possibility probably last uh, July-ish, around then. And I kind of, I, I came up with a lot of new material. I didn't present it because I thought, well, maybe that ship has sailed. But again, a lot of people have been coming over here. So I've been, I dropped the PDF file into this room. I encourage everybody to pick it up and follow along. We will be starting on page 29. The first 20 some odd pages cover part one, which I've already made into a video. You can go back, you can listen to it, or you can just read it if you'd like. But I, before I start from page 29, I will be covering, for anyone who is new to this, what exactly went down. So it started last summer when I was reading, we, as a group, anyone who was in our Discord group, we were reading through different extra biblical books some rarely read books, like the Testament of Job. And one of them was uh, Joseph and Asenath, or Yosef and Asenath, perhaps Asenath, however you want to pronounce that. And I was sitting down and reading it, and I got to a part where it started literally talking about how the Most High has an only begotten daughter. And my first instinct was, is this a metaphor? Like, what's going on with this? I think the first person I handed it off to was Rob in this group. And I was like, dude, you got to read this. Have you read this before? Like, tell me what's going on with this. And he seemed to pass it off like, okay, it's not like heretical. So I finally presented this case to my group. And the first week I presented it, people were excited. They were sitting in scripture verses. I put it on YouTube. People were writing me stuff. And I came up with this part two that I'm going to present tonight pretty quickly, which is not quite the same thing with the Millennial Kingdom, because people haven't been sending me stuff on that because they've been trying to disprove it. It's been a little bit slower in the progress of uh, building that case. So one of the things I addressed with the book, Joseph and Asenath, is one of the things that I look for in an extra biblical book. when. When someone asks, well, what is the curriculum of Scripture? I have a number of different opinions and views and thoughts on what constitutes Scripture. But the main uh, rule I look for, the one, or I should say the main qualification that I look for is, how does it feel about the law of Yahuwah? If it says the law of Yahuwah is unimportant or that it's been done away with, I know for a fact that that is not the spirit of the Most High, that that is the spirit of Antichrist speaking. So therefore, I will not qualify it. Well, we see, we see Asenath saying this quote right here, and this is in her prayer. She says, And unto thee will I reveal my transgressions of the law. So that, I found that really fascinating. This comes from chapter 12, verse 4. Asenath is actually saying that sin is transgressing the law. 
of Yahuwah. Well, this is exactly how Yochanan in 1 John 3, 4 qualifies sin. In the New Testament, people, in, in the church age, the age of grace, he says, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the Torah. For sin is the transgression of the Torah. Or you could render it in other translations, the law. But there's only one law. If it's talking about the law, it's talking about the Torah. So that right there is a qualification for me that this book is not going to lead me, is not intending to lead me away from the truth. It may have some mysteries it's going to reveal, but they're all worthless mysteries if it doesn't line up with the Torah, with telling us that transgressing the Torah is sin. So after that, we started looking at uh, the history of Dinah. Now, just so everyone clear is clear, Dinah is one of the, the uh, she is the sister of the 12 patriarchs. You can go down the list of patriarchs, uh, Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Yehuda, Yosef, Benjamin, you know, just you know, go down that list. Dan, well, Dinah is the sister of, she had 12 brothers to contend with. In Genesis chapter 34, there is an account where Dinah goes in with her mother, uh, I think it's Leah, and they go sit in, to some uh, convention or some festival where women get up and dance and have fun, being whatever women do together. One of the princes of the town looks down from his balcony. He lusts after Dinah. He takes her and he rapes her. Jasher chapter 33 gives a much longer account of that. This is the account where brothers Simeon and Levi trick, I think his name is Shechem. They trick Shechem and the entire town into circumcising themselves so that while they're in the pain of their circumcision, they can come back and massacre them all. Like, you know, as revenge, as vengeance for what he did to Dinah, they go and they, they massacre all of them. Well, Dinah has a child through that rape. And the child is a daughter. We don't, we don't hear what happens to that daughter. We pick up later and learn that Aseneth is the daughter of Dinah. Well, it's interesting because Dinah was, somehow she ended up in Egypt. We don't know how she ended up in Egypt, but she was adopted by Potiphar. Potiphar raised Dinah. Isn't that interesting? Yosef, of course. Now, Yosef is the uncle of Dinah. I'm not Dinah, of, of uh, Aseneth, because Dinah's his sister. He ends up under Potiphar. And he never sees. Aseneth, because Aseneth has never been seen by another man. This is what we come to see in Joseph and Aseneth. She lives up in a tower, and we learn how this is an allegory for this so-called only begotten daughter of Elohim. The only begotten daughter of Elohim is a virgin, lives in a tower. Nobody has seen her. She hasn't been revealed yet. And I gave the examples of what would happen if the only begotten daughter was revealed to humanity. Well, we know what happened when the only begotten son was revealed. He was murdered. So think about what would happen to Yahuwah's daughter and, and why it's so important that he protects her and doesn't reveal her. Well, just look what happened to Dinah. Dinah was raped. It would be way worse, way worse for, uh, for the only begotten daughter. In the first part of this paper, we also learned that Job married Dinah. And this is where it gets really interesting because the... Job, as in the book of Job, his first wife dies, 
and his second wife is Dinah. And Job lived uh, a double portion of life, and I believe Dinah did as well. I did the math. I crunched the numbers in there and showed how it would have worked out. Yes, Dinah would have been about 10 to 20 years older than Job, but apparently she had a bunch of children with him. And, oh, this is the, this is the really, I think, the touching part that I discovered. Dinah, it has been long commented on that she never had, I guess, an inheritance. She never, she was never a monarch. You know, she never had a, a child that was a tribe, right? She was, wasn't accounted for one of them. She was never given a portion. And yet we see that because her brother Yosef married her daughter, Aseneth and Yosef had two sons. What are their names? Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, it's kind of interesting that Yosef gets two portions. He gets Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is that? Well, again, Dinah. I kind of think Dinah is a part of that. That's why we have 13, because she's the 13th sibling. So, and also noticing, you know, that we come through Ephraim. If we are grafted into Yasharel, then we come through Ephraim. And this comes from the, the prophet Hosea and so on and so forth. So it's just interesting in this, in this story that Dinah was raped by a goyim, and the goyim come through her, her grandchildren. All right. So that being said, without further ado, let's go ahead. And I think I, I mostly got you caught up to speed. So we're going to be starting on page, I need to find it again, page 27, The Only Begotten Daughter of Elohim, Continued, Parts 5 through 8. Part 5, Dinah Married Her Brother. I know I said no sick second witness would be given the last time around. But that's only because I decided to go through with my findings, having neglected to comb every street corner or back alley of scripture. It doesn't mean the only begotten daughter of Elohim fails to exist elsewhere. It simply means that not every stone had been overturned in the investigation. If anything, I laid my cards on the table so that fellow readers might take up the task of sleuth work. Because sometimes it takes a village. In little time, a good number of passages were pulled. And guess what? They all detail or expound upon the same story. Salvation is a family affair. Another oversight in the Asenath narrative is rather embarrassing, as it's no small detail. I blame myself. You will recall that Dinah married Job, making her his second wife. His first wife died during the seven years of testing. And after crunching numbers, I proposed that Dinah bore her first of seven sons and three daughters for Job when she was somewhere between the years of 100 and 120. I furthermore assumed that Dinah was never given in marriage beforehand, seeing as how Shechem raped her. Well, I was wrong about that one. I decided to give the book of Yasher another read-through, and as it turns out, Dinah married one of her brothers. It says so right here. This comes from Jasher 45, verse 2. And uh, Eli Uram, the woman of Reuven, conceived and bore him Hanok, which is, I, th I think, the same as Enoch, uh, Paul Paulu Chets Chetsron, and Carmi. 
four sons. And Simeon, or Shimon, his brother took his sister Dinah for a woman, and she bore him Yemuel, Yemen, Ohad, Yakin, and Sokchar, five sons. Dinah became the woman of one of her twelve brothers, Simon. That's an easily overlooked blink, and you'll miss it detail. Still, though, how is that being obedient to Torah exactly? I asked myself the same question. The short and quick answer is, it's not. The law tells us so. So this comes from Leviticus chapter 18, verses 9 through 11. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or daughter of your mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, even their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's woman's daughter, begotten of your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. Again, Leviticus 18, 9-11. The, the prohibition that no man uncover the nakedness of his sister is put forward and then quickly restated so that nobody might claim a loophole with the fact that the girl is the daughter of his father through another woman other than his mother. It doesn't matter, though, because both Shimon and Dinah were the children of Leah. They came from the same seed planted into the same womb. That's a naughty no-no. The only conclusion I can make is that Simon was playing the part of her redeemer, seeing as how Dinah's rapist was, ahem, circumcised, and then offed during the weakness of his painful recovery. Nobody else from the sons of Shem were likely to marry her after she'd been defiled. And since Simon was personally responsible for Shechem's death, it might make sense that he spare her from any further shame. Really, I'm just trying to figure out the mind of a patriarch. It's the best I can do. Quite the redeemer, though. Dinah and Simon had five sons together. That's a lot of nakedness to uncover. The entire point of a redeemer, as commanded in Deuteronomy 25, is that a man was to take his deceased brother's wife, if they had failed to conceive any children together, and produce one child which might carry on the family name. You will recall that Dinah had a daughter couldn't succeed in the name of her father then, could she? Before you tell me the marriage of Simon to Dinah disproves my marriage of Job to Dinah theory, let me assure you that it doesn't. And it's not my theory anyways. Scripture says so. She became Simon's woman and then Job's woman. It's not like I'm making this stuff up. Take your issue to the complaint department of the ancients. If anything, Simon makes her second marriage to Job all the more reliably interesting, especially since we are further able to tighten up her timeline. Jasher records Simon's death in the following passage. And in the 75th year died his brother Simon. He was 120 years old at his death, and he was also put into a coffin and given into the hands of his children. Jasher 61 verse 4. Knowing that Simon was 120 years old at his death and that it happened during the 75th year of their sojourn, we can then know for certain that Dinah was considerably younger. 
So again from Jasher, chapter 31, verses 14 through 18. And when Yahuwah saw that Leah was hated, Yahuwah opened her womb, and she conceived and bore Yaakov, four sons in those days. And these are their names, Reuben, Simon, Levi, and Yehuda. And she afterward left bearing. And at that time, Rachel was barren, and she had no offspring. And Rachel envied her sister Leah. And when Rachel saw that she bore no children to Yaakov, she took her handmaid Bilhah, and she bore Yaakov two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And when Leah saw that she had left bearing, she also took her handmaid Zelpah, and she gave it to Yaakov for a woman. And Yaakov also came to Zilpah. Man, Yaakov was busy. And she also bore Yaakov two sons, Gad and Asher. And Leah again conceived and bore Yaakov in those days two sons and one daughter. And these are their names, uh, Yeshikar, Zebulun, and their sister, Dinah. Simon was the second-born child. Dinah was the 11th. How many years between might that be? No biological twins are accounted for. Is every child of Leah therefore an Irish twin? Notice that Leah did not offer Zilpah as a woman for Yaakov, and so she realized she was barren. How long do you figure a woman might go before she figures herself to be barren? A few years, maybe. Contextually, though, there is a cold war between Leah and Rachel, both sisters, and so you figure a year or two. But even then, Zilpah would need to get pregnant. Might not happen on the first try. She bore two sons before Leah once again figured out that she was still capable of producing patriarchs. Yishakar and Zebulun still preceded Dinah. What I'm saying is, Dinah was at least 10 years younger than Simon, if not more. Assuming that Dinah was 40 years of age when the patriarchs entered Egypt, Shimon's death would place her at the whereabouts of 115 years old when she became a widow. But that can't be so. She had to have been younger than 115, more like 110 or 105 even. That also means she was younger than 40 when entering Egypt. I had placed that estimate based upon Yosef, but for all I know, Rachel's son son was older. Perhaps she was closer to 25 or 30 to match Job's estimated age of 15. Anyhow, Anyhow, let's tally this up. That's one daughter through Shechem. Five sons with Simon, seven sons and three daughters with Job, making her the mother of 16 recorded children in all. That doesn't even include her grandchildren, Ephraim and Manasseh, which came to her through Yosef's marriage with Asenath. Part 6. Phanuel The name Phanuel literally means the face of Elohim, but you probably knew that already. Either way, take a note of that. Jot it down. Another random fact you're likely well aware of, especially if you're a Baptist or a recovering Baptist, and the mere thought of First Enoch makes you want to spit, is that there's an assigned angel over repentance. Yeah, lots of people want to hurl First Enoch into the book-burning pyre after learning that little nugget of information. Fanuel, or Penuel, is that angel. Uh-oh. This very moment, somebody is writing a letter just to let me know Jesus is the only person appointed over repentance, and that heaven is too small for an angel to take on the role. Well, Enoch says otherwise, and I stand by it. 
In the following scene, we are introduced to the four angels who surround the throne of Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim. These same four angels appear in other places throughout scripture. They are described as uh, Keruvim, by, or Cherubim, by the prophet Ezekiel, or living creatures by Yochanan in Revelation. Here they are simply angels. But unlike their other appearances, names are offered, and job duties are assigned to them. So what does this come from? This comes from Enoch chapter 40, I believe. And after that I saw thousands of thousands and myriads of myriads, and an infinite number of people standing before Yahuwah Sevaoth. On the four wings likewise of Yahuwah Sevaoth, on the four sides, I perceived others, besides those who were standing. Their name too I know, because the angel who proceeded with me declared them to me, discovering to me every secret thing. Then I heard the voices of those upon the four sides magnifying Yahuwah of glory. The first voice blessed Yahuwah Sevaoth forever and ever. The second voice I heard blessing the elect one and the elect who suffer on account of Yahuwah Sevaoth. Uh, just so everyone knows, Sevaoth means of host. Uh, you, would, you would read it like in the King James Bible, the Lord of hosts. The third voice I heard, petitioning and praying for those who dwell upon earth and supplicate the name of Yahuwah Sevaoth. The fourth voice I heard, ex expelling the impious angels and prohibiting them from entering into the presence of Yahuwah Sevaoth to accuse the inhabitants of the earth. That's interesting. Pause. Believe it or not, all four angels are protectors of Yahuwah's elect. Sure, they guard the throne of the Most High, but notice their stated purposes. Their prayers are directed at the set-apart living upon the earth. The second voice blessed the elect who suffer. The third petitioned and prayed for those who dwell upon the earth not unlike the only begotten daughter. So too does penitence pray for the set apart on the earth, you see. The fourth kept the devils and unclean ruachs from entering the presence of the Most High and accusing the inhabitants of the earth. That's pretty badass right there. You will tell me the first angel never did anything resembling praying for the elect. But that is only because Enoch did not hear him praying for the elect at that particular moment. In the continuing passage, he will be described as uh, Mikael, the one and only. Who is Mikael but the prince and protector of Yasharel? That's the same as Michael. It's like I've always said, if you're serving Yahuwah as a child of Yasharel and find yourself in need of protection, then who better than the very four bodyguards protecting the royal family in heaven? That's right. I said family. The fourth angel is Penuel, or Fanuel, by the way. No, I'm not ignoring him. It's just, we haven't gotten to that part yet. Continuing. And after this, I besought the angel of Shalom, who proceeded with me to explain all that was concealed. I said to him, Who are those I have seen on the four sides, and whose words I have heard and written down? He replied, The first is merciful, the patient, the holy Michael, or Michael. The second is he who is over every suffering and every affliction of the sons of men, the holy Raphael. The third, who is over all that is powerful, is Gabriel, or Gabriel. And the fourth, who is over repentance and the hope of those who will inherit eternal life, is Penuel. 
These are the four angels of El Elyon, and their four voices, which at that time I heard. Enoch chapter 40, verses 1 through 10. There it is, the controversial passage that has the 66-book Roman Council canon crowd crying heretic around the pyre. If such a thought causes the Baptists to grind their teeth and spit, then what I'm about to say would cause them to vomit. Isn't it interesting how the same angel who fins off the Satans also resides over repentance? Penitence, the only begotten daughter of Elohim, is so set apart in her heavenly tower that she would most certainly need protected from unclean ruach. Perhaps you see where I'm going with this. For the remainder of this follow-up paper, we will be dealing in double entrandes, or entendres. That is, one word with two unique meanings. Yahusha means Yah has saved. Accordingly, we can find the sons of Elohim all throughout Torah and the Tanakh as he is our salvation. I am therefore putting forward the distinct possibility that penitence is our repentance. The Holy Family is a guarded mystery indeed. The only begotten daughter is simply the most hidden of all four. What Enoch may ultimately be implying here is that repentance, or rather penitence, is the hope of those who will inherit eternal life. Before moving on, let's take another look at those four angels as they appear in Yochanan's vision. The hope, of course, is to glean some more information on the angel Phanuel. So this comes from Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto the crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes before, before and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face as a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Remember how I told you to take special note of Faniel's name? As a refresher, it means the face of Elohim. I can't outright prove this claim, obviously, but the third angel described by Yochanan appears to be the fourth angel described by Enoch as he's the only one with the face of a man. The reason for why the order is different is easily explained. If four angels stand in an infinite circle, then which one do you begin counting with? The one on the right of the left, or the one on the right of the right of the left? It's not like they're wearing t-shirts that says, Thing 1 and Thing 2. Yochanan may have stood there wondering, Hmm, I wonder which angel Enoch began counting first. But at some point, he chose to number them off on his finger and then describe them. More evidence that Phanuel is the heavenly creature with the face of a man and also the protector of penitence can be retraced to our source material, Yosef and Asenef. In my last paper, penitence was introduced to us in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. I won't repeat that passage here. What I Probably failed to mention, however, is the method by which Asenath learned that Yahuwah had an only begotten daughter. It was an angel who told her. Read for yourself. So this comes from chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. And as Asenath finished her confession to Yahuwah, this is where she prays and says that she has she is repenting of breaking the Torah of the Most High. Lo, the morning star rose in the eastern sky. 
And Asenath saw it and rejoiced and said, Yahuwah Elohim has indeed heard me, for this star is a messenger and herald of the light of the great day. And lo, the heaven was torn open near the morning star, and an indescribable light appeared. And Asenath fell on her face upon the ashes. And there came to her a man from heaven, and stood at her head, and he called to her Asenath. And she said, Who called me? For the door of my room is shut, and the tower is high. How then did anyone get into my room? And the man called her a second time and said, Asenath, Asenath. And she said, Here am I, my Adonai. Tell me who you are. And the man said, I am the commander of Yahuwah's house and the chief captain of all the house of the Most High. Stand up, and I will speak to you. And she looked up and saw a man like Yosef in every respect with a robe and a crown and a royal staff. But his face was like lightning, and his eyes were like the light of the sun, and the hairs of his head like flames of fire, and his hands and feet like iron from the fire. Yosef and Asenath 14 verses 1 through 8. Phanuel oversaw Asenath's penitence. But isn't Asenath just a metaphor for the mystery of Yahuwah's only begotten daughter? She is. If you ever wondered what the angel with the face of Elohim looked like, now you know. It apparently resembles Yosef in every respect. Let's keep looking for clues. So chapter 4 of the same book, verse 13 says, Is this not the shepherd's son from the land of Canaan, and he was abandoned by him? Believe it or not, that was a clue. Shepherd. The context here is that Aseneth, who is still lost in her transgressions, is angry at the mere thought of Yosef. Calling him a shepherd or the son of a shepherd is derogatory, far below the pedigree for any elite Egyptian or mystery religion neophyte. In doing so, she is also demoting the angel of repentance to a position below her feet. Worldly wisdom is so backwards, isn't it? The self-elevated heart, saturated with pride, cannot possibly see the heavenly crown upon the head of the humble calling, but I digress. Another fanual connection can be found in the fact that the angel, here described only as a man but who originates from the morning star, arrives after Asenath repents of her transgressions of the law and needs deliverance from the Elohim of Egypt and their father, Hasatan. Asenath, while on the floor of her bedroom, prays the following prayer. This comes from chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. I have sinned, O Yahuwah, before thee, I, the daughter of Pentephres the priest, the haughty and arrogant Asenath. To thee, O Yahuwah, I present my supplication, and unto thee will I cry, Deliver me from my persecutors, for unto thee have I fled, like a child to his father and his mother. And do thou, O Yahuwah, stretch forth thy hands over me, as a father that loves his children and is tenderly affectionate, and snatch me from the hand of my enemy. For lo, the wild primeval lion pursues me, and his children are the Elohim of the Egyptians that I have abandoned and destroyed, and their father, the devil, is trying to devour me. But do thou, O Yahuwah, deliver me from his hands, and rescue me from his mouth, lest he snatch me like a wolf and tear me, and case me into the abyss of fire, that might have been, uh, and chase, and into the tempest of the sea, and let not the great sea monster swallow me. 
Asenath pleads for help to her heavenly family, her father and mother, as the unclean Elohim of Egypt and their father Hasatan have it out for her. And who does Yahuwah send but Phanuel? Well, somebody resembling Phanuel. In turn, no Satan enters her abode. Not even a single hair from her head is singed. Again, I can't outright prove that the morning star with the face of Yosef and the fourth angel Fanu are the same, but I see no reason whatsoever as to why they're not. Prove I shall try, though. Let's try another witness. This one comes from the shepherd of Hermes, which is a very awesome read, if anyone hasn't read that one. Wherein we read, so this comes from the Shepherd of Hermes, chapter 47. It's a rather long book. If then, he saith, man is Adonai of all the creatures of Elohim and mastereth all things, cannot he also master these commandments? A, saith he, the man that hath Yahuwah in his heart can master all things and all these commandments. Well, that goes against... uh, (laughs) What the church advocates, you can't keep the commandments no matter how hard you try. So don't even try, because if you do, you're breaking them. <laughs> That's uh, church logic 101. But they, ha- <clears throat> but I digress. But they that have Yahuwah on their lips, while their heart is hardened and are far from Yahuwah, to them these commandments are hard and inaccessible. Ouch! I actually didn't realize that was coming next. <laughs> So, <laughs> so yes, you can't keep them if your heart is far from Yahuwah. Just, just remember that. Therefore do ye who are empty and fickle in the faith, set your Adonai in your heart, and ye shall perceive that nothing is easier than these commandments, nor sweeter, nor more gentle. Wow, I didn't realize how awesome this is. I love this passage. Be converted, ye that walk after the commandments of the devil. The commandments, which are so difficult and bitter and wild and riotous, and fear not the devil, for there is no power in him against you. For I will be with you. I, the angel of repentance, there it is, who have the mastery over him. The devil hath fear alone, but his fear hath no force. Fear him, not therefore, and he will flee from you. The Shepherd of Hermas, chapter 47, verses 3 through 7. The scene is awfully familiar, is familiar, isn't it? An unnamed angel visits Hermes rather than Asenath, but in both instances they have repented of their transgression of the law of Yahuwah and are now in need of deliverance from Hasatan. Of course, the devil has no power over such a person, so long as they refrain from giving him fuel for accusation. What is fuel but transgression of the law? Sin. That's why being obedient to the Father's commands is so important. And if you were paying attention, it is possible to obey the commands. Whereas Yahushua would say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Contrarily, what we have just read says, they that have Yahuwah on their lips while their heart is hardened, to them these commandments are hard and inaccessible. You know how Christians belittle the law by claiming it's impossible to keep? The angel of repentance has just told us that they are far from Yahuwah. Uh-oh. Faniel's, Faniel cannot possibly be protector over such a person, as sheep listen to the voice of their master, and they are in reality far removed from the flock. 
Asenath prayed that she be rescued from the mouth of the wolf who sought to snatch her. Leave it to Faniel then, her shepherd. What, don't believe me? That Faniel is a shepherd? Heretic, you whisper. Who do you think the shepherd of Hermas is exactly? The angel tells us right here. This comes from the shepherd of Hermas, chapter 25, verse 7. If then, when ye hear them, ye keep them and walk in them, and do them with a pure heart, ye shall receive from Yahuwah all things that he promised you. But if, when ye hear them, ye do not repent, but still add to your sins, ye shall receive from Yahuwah the opposite. All these the shepherd, the angel of repentance, commanded me to write. Let's put the pieces together. The shepherd with the face of Elohim, resembling Yosef, and who watches over penitence, the Most High's only begotten daughter, as well as the penitent sons and daughters adopted into the Holy Family through Yasharel, is none other than one of Yahuwah's four sentry guards, Phanuel. Part 7. The Garments of Penitence Sackcloth Penitence has clothing attire, and the answer is sackcloth. That's how we ultimately meet penitence, you know. The end game is achieved by humbling ourselves in repentance. The penitence which I speak of is practically graffitied across the pages of Edemic literature. That probably sounds unflattering at first, but Adam and Hava are a messy duo. What I'm trying to express is that the need for penitence is everywhere in post-Edenic passages. I, I had even considered devoting an entire section to simply supplying the constant he-said-she-said quotes surrounding Adam and Hava's quest for salvation and penitence, but that would be overly repetitive. At present, however, the following passage should suffice. It is Hava who tells Adam, Now come and let us repent in penitence for 40 days, so that Elohim may pity us and then give us better food than, the, than that of the dumb animals, lest we should become like them. The book of Adam, chapter 4, verse 3. The penitence presently spoken of by which Adam and Hava display their repentance is water. Not sackcloth exactly, but the concept is the same. Knowing that their promised baptism in a sea of glass awaits them in paradise, they are modeling their actions on earth as it is in heaven. Hava ends up standing in the Tigris River for 34 days, with Adam taking up 40 days in the Yarden River. Interesting. After Yahushua Messiah's baptism in the Yarden, the second Adam was led by the Ruach HaKadosh into the waters for the matter of 40 days. I also didn't comment here. I'm going to just throw this out because I don't think I mentioned it in my the episode I did on showing that Mount Zion is the same as the Mountain of Worship. Um, based on the altar, that here we see another close proximity to Jerusalem, that, that the Garden of Eden was over Yerushalayim, right there with, we see the Yarden River, that Adam is in close proximity of the Yarden River, or the Jordan. It has already been established that Asenath modeled the only begotten daughter of Elohim here on earth, just as her husband Yosef modeled Messiah. Well, Asenath can be found modeling the wardrobe of repentance too. Moments before her visit from Faneuil, through whom she would learn about penitence in heaven, Asenath can be found sprawled out upon the floor of her room, bellowing this prayer. Look upon my orphanhood, O Yahuwah, 
for unto thee did I flee, O Yahuwah. Pause. Nobody can be grafted into the Yasharel, um, I'm sorry, into Yasharel, thereby becoming adopted children of the Holy Family, unless they first become an orphan to the father of this world. It's a marriage thing. Yahusha said his kingdom was not of this world, and Aseneth gets it. Continuing. Lo, I took off my royal robe interwoven with gold and put on a black tunic instead. Lo, I loosed my golden girdle and girt myself with a rope and sackcloth. Lo, I threw off my diadem from my head and sprinkled myself with ashes. Lo, the floor of my room once scattered with stones of different colors and of purple and besprinkled with myrrh is now sprinkled with my tears and scattered with ashes. Lo, Yahuwah, from the ashes and from my tears, there is as much mud inside my room as there is on a public highway. Yosef Nasinath, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. There it is, the attire, sackcloth and ashes. Only the meek will understand what Asenath is up to. She is removing her royal robe and the diadem on her head, which was offered to her by the Elohim of this world, in exchange for the, the attire of affliction, which might ultimately manifest towards her queenship in heaven. When was the last time that any of us wept so passionately for our sins that the floor of our room became, as we might expect, of the mud on a public highway. That's some serious penitence right there. In doing so, Aseneth is declaring war upon the kingdom of Hasatan. A similar scene can be found in the Testament of Job, which again concerns the man who would later marry Aseneth's mother, Dinah. While laying upon a, a dung heap for the matter of seven years, Job wore the garments of penitence when telling his fellow kings to their utmost horror of the coming kingdom from above. And so it says in the Testament, Testament of Job, chapter 7, verses 34 through 37, And when Eliphaz had for a long time cried and lamented, while all the others joined him, so that the commotion was very great, I said to them, Be silent, and I will show you my throne, and the glory of its splendor. My glory will be everlasting. The whole world shall perish, and its glory shall vanish, and all those who hold fast to it will remain beneath. But my throne is in the upper world, and its glory and splendor will be to the right of the Savior in the heavens. My throne exists in the life of the holy ones, and its glory in the imperishable world. Job got it. His royal friends, not so much. Consider Eliphaz's response. This man sits here in misery, worm-eaten, amidst an unbearable state of putrefaction, and yet he challenges it, saying, Kingdoms shall perish and their rulers, but my kingdom, says he, shall last forever. Eliphaz then rose in great commotion, and turning away from them in great fury, said, I go hence. We have indeed come to comfort him, but he declares war to us in view of our armies. True repentance, you see, is a threat to the kingdom of Hasatan. Ironically, and I'm beginning to sound like a broken record by this point, the kings of the earth would go to war over the reality of penitence in heaven, if she were, if she were revealed. They would never love her, though, nor would they truly appreciate or understand her beauty. 
all they could do is defile her virginity, or worse. And you know they would, given the opportunity. How can anyone honor and cherish penitence if the method of attaining her through repentance was despised? You know who else got it? Enoch. Enoch pleased Yahuwah and was translated being an example of repentance to all generations. That comes from Ecclesiastes 44.16. Or Sirach, I should say. We are never given details of Enoch's transgression. But for unspoken reasons, it is no matter. You should say Enoch walked as Yahuwah, Yahusha Messiah walked. But according to Sirach, you could also say he walked according to penitence. Enoch lived as though he were a royal priest in paradise, and so he was offered his reward. Enoch was translated there. Part 5. The Pathway to Penitence This is the part where I offer you potential witnesses in Scripture. I say potential, but if you were paying attention, then I've already been offering. I've been offering them up little by little. Penitence is a mystery. Considering all that has already been spoken, you will once again have to read with the mindset of double entendre and intrigue to see the hidden connotations. Without repentance of sin, there is no fruit worthy of salvation. However, it is only through the fruit offered by the Ruach HaKadosh to the house of Yasharel that true repentance might be achieved. That is why repentance is the pathway to penitence. It's entirely circular, I know. You shall see what I mean, hopefully. For our grand finale, let's have one masterful go at it. The following passage derives from the prayer of Manesha. You therefore, O Yahuwah, that are the Elohim of the just, as to Abraham and Yitchak and Yaakov, which have not sinned against you, but you have appointed repentance unto me that am a sinner. For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. My transgressions, O Yahuwah, are multiplied. My transgressions are multiplied, and I am not worthy to behold to see the height of heaven for the, for the multitude of my Torahless deeds. The Prayer of Manasseh, chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. What have we so far learned? Repentance is on par with forgiveness in that it can only be handed to us as a generous gift from above. In Manasseh's case, repentance was appointed to him that he might turn from his lawlessness. That means he could not very well have turned and repented from his toilless deeds had it not been decreed from above. In this way, neither Manasseh nor any of us may boast in our works. Next. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to state within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that Elohim is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Matthew chapter eight, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. This one comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 8. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And be, begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that Elohim is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Here we see the same quote from two synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke. 
The speaker is Yochanan the Baptist. His purpose is to prepare for the groomsmen, aka the son of Elohim, and the swiftly approaching kingdom of heaven. Interesting how the fruit comes first and then repentance follows. You'd think it would be the other way around. That fruit would hang from the branches of a penitent heart, but no. Everything I've so far read in scripture informs me the fruit can only derive from the Ruach HaKodesh. Therefore, repentance is not possible without either the Ruach or the fruit she offers. Moving on. This comes from Luke chapter 5, verse 32. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The speaker is Yahusha. The sinners he is speaking about are not the lawless Goyim, but the people of the Asherah lost in their transgressions. Sure, the Goyim can also find the narrow path of salvation, but only if they're grafted in, as salvation is a family affair, and the heavenly crew only offers it to the children of Yashirel. Don't believe me? Yahusha said so right here. But he, Yahusha, answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Yashirel. Matthew 15, 24. He only came for the lost sheep of the house of Yasharel. That is why Kepha's words ring true when he told the captain with the officers, Him has Elohim exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Yasharel and forgiveness of sins. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verse 31. Again, no surprises. Penitence is offered to Yasharel. Nobody else, though. I have already explained elsewhere that the Ruach HaKodesh is mother to Yasharel and no other people. If the law was ever only expected of the children of Yasharel, then it's rather difficult for the Goyim to repent of something they've never been given. They're already lawless. It only makes sense that, they, that Yahusha, the son of the Most High Elohim, would come for the children who had wandered away from the Fifth Commandment honoring father and mother. Like Yahuwah, like Yahuwah and the Ruach HaKodesh, salvation and penitence belongs to Yasharel alone. Here's another passage from Acts. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Yerushalayim and throughout all the coast of Yehud, or I guess Yehuda, and then to the other nations, that they should repent and turn to Elohim and do works Meet for repentance. The Acts of the Apostles 26.20 Not the first instance in which repentance is treated as a noun. Yahusha has already told us that he came, verb, to call, verb, sinners to repentance, noun. Kepha said about the same in Acts 5.31. Similarly, the expected works serve as a verb in 26.20. And what are the works again but fruit of the Ruach HaKodesh, all gifts from above? The anticipated meeting is with repentance. Let's see what Shaul has to say on the matter. This comes from Romans 2.4. Or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of Elohim leads you to repentance. Is that another noun? Definitely seems possible. Looks to me like Elohim is leading us to something, but also to someone. And now for a personal favorite. This comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift 
and were made partakers of the Ruach HaKodesh, and have tasted the good word of Elohim and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they execute again to themselves the son of Elohim and put him to an open shame. I have quoted from this verse in Hebrew so often, as it appears to be saying salvation cannot be reclaimed by those who once tasted the gifts of heaven, claiming them as their own, after having denied Yahusha. Why is that exactly? Because Yasharel was already divorced once. We have now been offered the chance to re-enter into a marriage covenant with the word of Elohim through the death and resurrection of Yahusha. That being said, the son of Elohim isn't coming again to die a second or third time for those who re-enter and then obstinately abandon their husband, as though the severing of divorce is no matter. Well, here's something which I never noticed before. The entire heavenly family is involved in the salvation warning. Look closely. We see our heavenly mother, the Ruach HaKodesh. We, th- we see the son of Elohim. We see the powers of the world to come, and power is ever only attributed to the Father. Important to this conversation, however, is the fact that the soul who abandons their heavenly citizenship will never be renewed unto repentance again. That is to say, such and such soul will not be capable of penitence here on earth, nor will they be appointed a meeting with her in heaven. Conclusively, she's there in scripture. At least, she appears to be. Yahushua didn't call the kingdom of heaven a hidden treasure for nothing. Look for her. Again, I'm not saying Yahuwah does have an only begotten daughter. All I'm saying is that he has a son, and I see no reason why he wouldn't have or want a daughter of his own. Also, I only started talking about a potential daughter because I read in scripture that he has one, and that penitence is her name. There is no shame in that. So, why is nobody else talking about it? Probably because if he does have a daughter, and I'm inclined to think it's true, there is very good reason as to why she would be hidden from the knowledge of the lawless world. You know why. Penitence is set apart and waiting to be revealed, but only for those whom heaven appoints. Yahuwah is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Kepha 3.9 Alright, that's it. And then I have some other ones after that, but... Wow. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. And uh, I'll uh, open it up for, I'll roundtable it now. So let me know your guys' thoughts. Should we all open mic and cheer? Wow, way to go. (laughs) Great. That was a great job pulling all this together. Uh, You you even fine-tuned in even some more. Uh, I think you did a, a wonderful job. Thank you. Can I ask a question about the Torah from the first part? I'm I'm afraid, but please ask. <laughs> well, okay. I was just thinking about like Simeon um having relations with his sister 
Um, oh, oh yes, that question that I I'll try my best. Well, I, the thing is, like the the Torah, I don't. It, I know you said like you know the commands were in place from the beginning, but it seems like like if you look at Adam and Eve, for example, and like their kids having kids and kids, like there must have been some commands that were not always so universal. Like I know we see like the food laws, right? Like we see clean and unclean with Noah. But like, did they really have all the commands about like the temple and how to sprinkle the blood and you know what I'm saying? Like there it seems like there was probably um many commands that had just not come to light uh at least universally in the beginning. Well, and so yeah, I don't know, go yeah. ahead, sir. Yeah, so you're asking a good question that I also have a question. Uh, or is a question for me as well that I can't answer. I can answer some things that you've already answered, is that there are some things we know that they did know, right? That Cain and Abel knew and Adam knew. And there's an interesting passage in the right. Well, let me start before I go to the writings of Abraham. I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince myself not to quote from that book because it's like, for some reason, super controversial. I don't get. I don't understand why, but it's super controversial. But in the Aramaic Targum in Exodus, there's a fascinating passage. We just read it for our last Torah portion. When the when the first Passover is happening, the first, the first I should say official fulfillment of Passover. Um, with the angel of death coming, and you know the the blood of the lamb they put on the door. Before that, there was the the plague of darkness that went over all of Egypt, and it says in the Aramaic Targum that light shined in the houses of the Hebrews. Why? So that they could study the precepts of the law, and so it was staying there that before they got to Mount Sinai, they were studying the law, and this is where I say that they knew what the law was before they made the marriage vows. There's, so going back to the writings of Abraham, the the reason why Abraham did not get circumcised until very late in life, and he circumcised Ishmael when he was what, like twelve or something, uh, is told to us that Shem approaches Abraham and he says, "When you were in my school in the school of Shem, we taught you all the law, but we held back circumcision because Yahuwah had instructed us." Not to tell you because that was to be a special covenant you were made with to make with him. So in that context, they seem to to teach him. They don't, you know, Shem doesn't say all six thirteen. We don't know what. I guess how many. I guess that's up for debate. But they did hold something back so that Abraham could personally be instructed by the Most High on that, and that was circumcision. So again, I can't answer that question, right? But it's it's a good one you bring up again because the the flip of that is Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. And I'm still trying to get to the bottom of the twin dynamic, what that looked like, because the book of Adam and Eve talks about how they had uh, each had a twin sister. I don't know if that means they were quadruplets um, or what, which is very possible. But, you know, they each married the other, the other twin. And, 
or they were supposed to, and then Cain actually decided he didn't want to marry Abel's twin, and he married his own twin. And that's one of the things, you know, it says he killed them over. So, yeah, so they, they married their sisters, and so that's, that's a very good point, right? Maybe that wasn't part of the law yet. Maybe that wasn't enacted yet. You could still marry your sister. Um, but then again, we also have to, you know, hopefully I'm not sounding bipolar right now. There is something peculiar about the fact that Dinah was raped, and the person who married her was Simeon, the person who had the idea to go and murder, uh, not, not murder, I'm sorry, that, that was kill, I guess maybe that was a Freudian thing to happen, kill all the, you know, circumcise and then kill all the people. Levi clearly couldn't marry her because that would have been um, infringing upon his priestly duty. He would no longer be able to be a priest if he married a defiled woman. So it, it was left to Simeon. So in, in a way, you could say Levi was fulfilling the law. Does anyone else want to jump in at that? Yeah, I, I wanted to say that um, the, the law around incest was given to Noah. So up to Noah, uh, I mean, they just, they started from two people, right? So of course, in the beginning, it was the... <laughs> The couples were brothers and sisters, and then it was cousins and nieces and nephews, you know, that's how it started. But then when it got to Noah after um, the flood, uh, he was given a, f a few laws, and one of them was incest. So from that moment on, um, it was forbidden to everyone, not only... Um, whoever comes under the covenant okay everyone was under th those laws um the i had a question to you Noel. where exactly in the canon does it say that uh, shimon married dina you know his sister so where where does it say it doesn't. The only place I found it was in Jasher. And like I said, that if, if you blink, you'll miss it. Like you just read through it and it's like, it just wedged in there in a, in a sentence. And, the, and it's interesting too, that when you get later on to Joseph and Asenath, Levi and Simeon, again, are the two people that are defending Asenath when Pharaoh's son wants to kill off Yosef to marry her. And uh, it's kind of interesting because he, if, if, and I, I, I believe, you know, Jasher is uh, legit. I don't question it. I don't believe it's a medieval forgery. Um, I've seen too much evidence to counter that. It, it's kind of interesting that he would have been defending his, uh, I guess, his, his stepdaughter, really. You know, the, the entire reason he would have married her in uh, Jasher. And again, so for anyone out there that is, canon only you know basically everything i talked about tonight can be thrown out so because i'm getting i'm sourcing a lot of information from these other books okay and so asenath's biological father who is that um asenath's biological father was shechem he is the man who raped dinah and in jasher it actually gives the account when Levi and Simeon show up to get their sister back, and it, he's almost like this, like this, this snooty French villain. He's like up on the balcony. He's like, he's like, mwah, mwah. he's like kissing her, like her, like 
her arm and stuff. And he's like, I'm not giving her back, you know? And so they, you know, that's when they convince the town that if they all get circumcised, they will trade their, their daughters with them. And then they kill them all off. So the, uh, Dinah, the man who raped Dinah was killed. And that would be Asana's father. So we are never told why she, her daughter disappeared. We're never told. I've never seen a text on that yet. It might be out there. All of a sudden, she shows up in Potiphar's house. And by the way, the Aramaic Targum, which I quoted from in the first uh, series I did on this, it says, I think it says straight out that Asenath is Dinah is her uh, mother. So it's you get you get the Aramaic Targum, which agrees with uh, Joseph and Asenath there. There's actually a lot of books that all kind of give the same story from different perspectives. Quite a few. That's uh, actually. I, I, sorry, go ahead, Noel. No, I had I had nothing else I was going to say. Nothing intelligent. I, I was just going to say it's kind of interesting looking at Asenath being born of sin, and you think of penitence also being born of sin. Like she wouldn't have even have needed to exist without. That Satan deceiving Eve. Just another like parallel in the story, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it makes well, you. That's an interesting point, but like we say, Yahusha's uh, like, from the beginning. So possible. It's a, it's interesting. It's one of those things that we can speculate on, talk about, but uh, you know, as as many of us know, that we don't want to uh, speak to this as as quote gospel. But these are things that we dig into and seek out truth and see what these possibilities are and consider them. Uh, whether the this parallel that is is comparing to Asenath and uh, repentance or penitence is that. There, there may have been something where penitence had been 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 led another path and and had repented on that, and hence has been hidden. I mean, that's I mean that's kind of how I'm reading into it, but uh, I don't I don't really want to say that is what it is, but it just makes you wonder about that. And then because of the penitence and because of the sincerity and because of the power of it it may i think it changed everything it, it's brought uh, it's brought this new dynamic into into existence of uh if you want if you will if you will call this uh perfect holiness that something that could be possibly corrupted uh hence healed through penitence and perhaps that is giving us all that that opportunity through penitence and salvation. Just hmm. thoughts. Yeah, it kind of shows you the family again. Yeah, it's the like, family affair and how it brings everyone in. So Shechem was a Hivite, right? So I'm just wondering how that like would affect uh, the lineage. Yeah, so he was a uh i did a i did a background on him and yeah if you want to go the looking at it like serpent seed yeah he's he's not he's on very shaky ground and 
I wrote another paper on, okay, yeah, so I wrote another paper on this, on the children of Yaakov and all who they married, all the wives that are accounted for, and Yehuda was pure, Levi was pure, um, uh, Benjamin was pure, they, most of them were, but a couple of them, of course, Yehuda started out not pure, I mean, that, that's the whole story with Tamar. Uh, and that was sorrowful for him, and it didn't work out well, but then he finally fixed the situation, and that that line didn't continue, uh, my understanding, but it's it's really crazy to think about it, how close it came, how cl many close calls there were to having a pure line that led up to Yahusha, and I, and I believe it was. I believe that there was a pure line that led to Yahusha, it was prophesied as so, but uh, it, it would mean that Yosef's uh, wife, Aseneth, was not from a pure line, and that his um, children, Ephraim and Manasseh, again, you know, were not were not pure like Yaakov's children. And again, that's why I pointed out that it's interesting that the the Goyim, the Gentiles, when they're coming into when they're grafted into salvation through the house of Yasharel, they come in through Ephraim, through Aseneth's son. And it, it's, again, this is all the story of salvation. And it's, it's incredible how many layers there is to this and how it all comes together. I, well, I, I, just, I, I wanted to. Go ahead. I just wanted to say that I was uh, quickly doing some searches on what, uh, you know, over the generations, what uh, rabbinical uh, <laughs> sources said about it, um, like all the way from, um, you know, the, the sages of the Second Temple until uh, more modern sages, <laughs> and apparently... Everyone um, accept this that uh, um, Shimon married Dina, and um, they they are like I'm just reading it and it's hilarious. They are flip flopping, trying to give excuses of how it could have happened and how it was allowed. Um, but some of the the excuses are literally outrageous <laughs> and funny. Well, they do recognize just, it, though, Ronit. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to tell you, Noel, that they actually, all of them, like even the biggest ones, like Rashi, um, all of them accepted that fact. Hmm. So it was it was a known fact. and But they were flip-flopping. Um, on how it could so the, I, I just did like a quick uh, search but I, I'll study it a little bit more and then I'll let you know what they came up with okay I appreciate that so, go ahead um, this, this is to do with Dinah and her rape so in Torah, it's rape if she's called out for help, right? So that's how we can know that it was established that she was raped because she would have called out for help and no one came to help her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you're supposed to right? uh, so, cry out. So if she cried out for rape and then no one came to help her, so it's officially a rape at this point, 
Then when her brothers went and avenged her, were they really doing anything all that bad? What is the Torah? What is the Torah punishment for rape if a man rapes a woman? So you're asking a moral question that I actually don't have an answer to. And I know this is something that within the, the Torah community I have seen discussed multiple times, and it seems like people disagree on what whether what should have happened. Now Yitchak's response, or I should say Yaakov's response, is that he's like he couldn't believe it when he found out that his sons went and did that. And he's like, you know, they're going to come and hunt me down. They're going to kill me now, which was, you know, he was living in fear. That in, in itself was not the the right response necessarily to have. But I can't answer whether they did the right thing or not. I don't know. And because what, isn't there, a, isn't there a Torah, isn't there a Torah commandment for what happens to someone who's raped? Well, yeah, I'm sure there is. And I'm sure we could look that up and, okay. and see, but, Keep in mind, it wasn't just now. Maybe the entire town was complicit with it, right? Exactly. That's where my mind is going. Is like, what if they were holding that town responsible because they were protecting that guy, right? And the and the and the brothers are making judgment against an entire town and going, "Yep, yeah, nope, they all deserve to die because they knew she was being raped and no one did a thing to help her." And also, Shechem's father uh, was was also siding with his son as well. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe they weren't as bad as they'd been painted, like the like the Simon Simeon and Levi. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe I would. They, I, yeah, I think you bring up a that's a really that's a really great thought process. I think that's that's one of the best I've heard. That's really good. Well, I feel we're going to find more as you've shown in this rewrite of this um, or addition to this um, essay, this article, your paper that and I'm, I'm pretty sure you left some notes on the side um more about penitence more about you know yahuwah's family and that once again um as you shared showing where we see this um this relationship in the in um in the bible in the word that as you as you as you asked let's see what um more of us can bring to the table what more of us might find through our own reading of the word so wonderful wonderful job yeah and since mike said that i don't know if josh is still recording but if this does end up in the recording uh anyone out there in youtube land who does stumble upon this if you guys have any additional scripture verses anything you've read in any books or anything that would help us in this investigation uh <laughs> Do not do not withhold. Uh, be sure to send it my way, and thank you for cooperation. It's amazing some of the things that we uncover as we don't hold ourselves back and question everything and dig deeper into what 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 we see and what we find. Because uh, many times when we are reading some scriptures and we find some contradicting verses and and or or subject matters. There's always something in there that we have to uncover, and that that's what I've realized is every time we we see something that is controversial, where you'll have one side pit against the other, no, it says this, no, it says that. Many times we find out, and I know Michael and I talk about this a lot, is that that they're maybe they're both right, 
you know, they're they're it's just that there's something in it that they're both missing. Not to say that we know it, it's just that we realize there's something more into it. And there's been a few occasions where we've we've discovered that. And that that's what I challenge everybody when you're discussing scriptures with somebody and you both have really good scriptures that support what you're saying, then there's something in something you're both missing. There there's gotta be an alignment. Uh, because I think what the enemy wants to do is cause everyone to pit against each other. No, this is true. No, that is true. When they both have truth in what they're they're positioning themselves. So if if it is, but yet conflicting, we've got to really dig deeper into it because there's there's something more to it. Let's not fight about who's right and who's wrong. Let's let's more or less discuss what are we both missing here. If if we both believe these. Uh, unlike views, but have scripture to back it up. That's what I challenge people. I obviously fully agree with you, 100%. Amen. But but I would add, and this is something that I think Rob and Michael and I have been really discovering recently, at least I've been discovering, and they've been going through it with me, is we're going through these Hebrew texts like uh, Hebrew John, Hebrew Revelation, is that it's amazing what just the alteration of a little word can do to change someone's opinion in a sentence about theology, like obeying the law or whatever. And what, what I, what, again, while I, 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 I fully agree with what Rob just said, another thing though, that I have to look at is, is we have, this is part of just digging through scripture, just the wealth of all these different books that the most high has given us is, is trying to figure out some of these, there are some alterations with, you know, different languages. And so a good example of this is um, I really like the book of third Baruch and I'm preparing, uh, I'm preparing a study on it as well as second Enoch and some of these others. Um, on what heaven looks like according to these books, and some fascinating things in there, but I also recognize that these books came to us by way of Greek language, and in Third Baruch, there are some ideas in there which I I think are just Greek ideas, that they're not Hebrew ideas. So this is something I'm looking at going, well, I don't really feel comfortable with these ideas, and I think I've demonstrated that with the Hebrew books, that like those Greek ideas seem to be stripped away really quickly. And, and that's some of the tension that we have to deal with because if their, if their Baruch is genuine scripture, it could not have been written in Greek because Baruch wouldn't have written in Greek. He would have had, you know, read in uh, Hebrew. And of course, I'm not really concerned with all, what all the scholars say about dating and all that stuff. Like scholars like, like assume things. Like when we get into the, the argument of uh, was the same author responsible for first and second Peter? Those scholars who are saying that one or the other is a um, a false book, they're assuming that the writer wrote in Greek. Well, I'm for, I'm here to say that Peter wrote in Hebrew. He did not write in Greek. He might have written in he might have understood both languages, but I think first and foremost he first and foremost he wrote in Hebrew. So the questions I ask are: If you've got first and second Kepha sounding very dissimilar from each other in Greek. How do I know that there are two different translators that are taking these books and you know making them sound very differently? If you were to take two of my papers, say they were written 20 years apart, or just take something that was written five years ago. No, no, no. Take something that was written two years ago. 
Okay, it's something that was written two years ago, and then something I wrote like a month ago. And then let's translate them into Latin or some other language. Just pick your language. I don't care. Japanese, you know, Swahili, Pigeon, whatever. French, choose your language. But two different dudes are going to interpret these. They're going to sound, people are going to go, did the same person write that? You see what I'm saying? And these are some of the fallacies that we bring to the table that it's hard to pick through. Um, I, I still am holding, just so everyone knows, I'm, I'm still holding out that, that, that Kifa, you know, wrote first and second, um, uh, Peter. Um, I'm not saying that it, it wasn't, um, but anyways, th hopefully that, that helps. It's, I'm not trying to confuse people, but it's just, it's some of the tension we have to live with that we know that that things change in different languages. I don't, I don't hold to this like supernatural, like the King James only people that, you know, the King James Bible is supernatural transfer to the whole, the Ruach HaKodesh, because I can prove that there are some bad, you know, translations in there uh, very simply. And I've, I've done it with some King James people recently. They got really upset at me, but just showed that, you know, their theory is incorrect. Um, yeah. Well, Cyber, uh, if you could if you could translate pigeon, then you could then you could translate my my writing to the the pigeon speaking people. But obviously, you can't, so we don't have to worry about that. I was just going to ask off the record, how did it feel quoting Paul in your paper? Uh, yeah, I you know I, I I've been trying, as everybody knows, I've been trying really really hard to be um some ways unbiased and to give him a chance to give him a fighting chance i really am like i i'm trying to see what everybody else sees in him and so i have tried from the approach that i could quote from him just as i would quote from josephus or uh i don't know Clement or any, uh, you know, Polycarp or any of these other guys. I don't have to uh, agree with all his theology. I've tried that approach, which I did on this paper. Sometimes, you know, I wonder if, if taking that middle ground is, if I would make me the worst offender. Um, you know, if I, I, I don't know. So I'm still trying to figure out all those pieces. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I feel uncomfortable talking about uh, Shaul, because I personally am not a fan of him, and um, but I also want to respect those who are obey Torah and really love the guy. I, I do. I, I'm trying. So I don't. I don't know where. I don't know where the um, the right ground to stand on is because, as many of us have seen, that there was a big falling away in the last year, and part of a large part of the discussion focused on Paul. And that, in a lot of ways, as a person who is a responsible for this ministry, the unexpected cosmology, um, I am responsible for where I lead people, and um, so those are all things I consider. That's like, oh man, that's the danger we were just talking about, though, with like the millennial kingdom, for example, like E. Warren on. Like, I don't know. I'm just, it seems like, you know, he could say, oh, and it turns out like 
none of this is biblical and we have to follow the information where it leads and like lead all these people astray. I know. It's just like all these things, if you are not grounded, can lead you off. It, it, yep. it frightens me because I see some of these very charismatic people in the truth of realm, YouTube, whatever, and people hinge on their every word and they yep. and they just lead people astray. And they do it through these open investigations. You know, they're gonna be unbiased through these open investigations and they just want the truth and and people will yeah, they will follow them. And that that's it's pretty terrifying. And I, I don't want to be that person. I really don't want to be some of you are gonna laugh that I say this because we're like we, that's not a problem but i i really don't want to be that guru on the hill guys i don't want to be the guy where uh everyone's talking on the youtube when is he going to come out with his next video and we're going to all go over there and we're going to listen to what he says and then you know speak to us the truth they'll reveal things to us that we've never heard before like i don't want to be that guy like i really don't and you know what it reminds me of just right right to the right to the heart it goes hey remember don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't. And how many people today would hear that and go, yeah, yeah, I'm not buying that one. Let me have some. It's like, okay, mm, I guess you didn't get the first message. Yeah. Yep. To, to also to know your point there is we see so many people. And I've seen this in even, you know, the tour groups, so many people, following the you know youtube land teachers and truthers and uh, what they're revealing and if it's a uh, a great charismatic video or presentation etc that a lot of people just uh hang on to every word of what's being said and if they don't do their own research or if they only just pick one or two people and they listen to them uh that's where you get can be uh, can find yourself in in some troubles because if that one or two people you're listening to uh, leads you down the wrong path or only goes down a certain path, it may you may be blinded in other areas that can catch you off guard. So I always challenge people to um, use discernment, pray, listen to as many as you can because I believe. Many people have truth. I mean, even even the uh, false teachers that they're going to have to have truth in order to to sway you their way. So everyone's going to have some truth in what they're teaching. It's just a matter of discerning through that, so that you can at least find the ones that are grounded in the real truth and stick to the most of them to where you're getting the truth from. So at least you'll be more protected than end up. Down, you know, way out in left field, as I say, uh, from from uh, the the winds of of change of of truth out there. So that, that's the biggest challenge, and I I I have to warn people on that because I've seen that happen before. Uh, when you're only listening to one or two people, and if that those two people aren't the ground very well grounded, you're at risk. That's why you have to go back to Yahusha again, the truth. And if mm -hmm. something, someone, anything contradicts him. We got to, again, take it at his word and go, well, it doesn't matter. It is. We got to go back with Yahusha. We don't need to debate whether this, who this other person is. We can just go for yeah, whatever if you, reason. If, yeah, what if you, mistranslation. Yeah, if you, 
If yes. you're using the way, the truth, and the life as your second witness and, and, and putting everything up against it, then that's the best way because uh, you got to pit everything against that. Which shows yes, us so again that, that how many of us um, forget that and, and, and don't realize that some of these things when that are contradictory to what Yahushua says and to go, no, we're not just saying this isn't right. It's, again, knowing the word enough to, again, go back to um go, come back to him uh, yeah go ahead Ronnie. Yeah. so so that um that means that people actually need to open the book and read rather than just listen to other people interpretation um, right. So that's and and people are not used to it. They are programmed to just follow a certain teacher or leader. You know, they are not used to doing the homework, to doing the work on their own. And and it has to be a combination of the two. True, because otherwise you're doing what mainstream Christianity does: is sit in a pew, listen to one teacher telling you basically what the word says i mean you could be doing the same thing in front of a laptop listening to one or two people you know over and over and over you're doing literally the same thing and you just you got to be able to dig dig into what they're teaching where they're getting their information research it yourself um because it says we have to be bereans we have to research and know what the words say and discern through it, not let one or two people tell you what it says, but do it yourself. Exactly. Do you remember that uh, children book? Um, I think it's a German children book about the, the flute player from Hamlin. I don't know how, the name of it in English. The Pied Piper. Roof, that one? The Pied Piper. Piper, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, <laughs> that's the one. So it just reminds me, you know, and I think like right now we have so many of those uh, uh, pipers um, and people are just hearing good uh, tune from them and they just follow them blindly. I don't know yeah. if I made sense. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, make, that makes sense. And, and, and I don't want to speak for Noel or Michael, but I know when we talk on our Thursday nights, I mean, our, our now Shabbat Saturday nights, is that one thing that we, we, we say, to, say to everyone is take what we say and research it yourself. You know, who, who are we? You know, we, we do study. We do look into the scriptures, and we're just sharing what we have discovered or found and, and put it forth to the brethren. And everyone else, we, we say, you've got to look this and validate it yourself, please. Yeah, as, or as Zach Bauer would say, uh, you know, go home and read your Bibles. And that's something that most people will never do. This is one of the reasons why the elites are not that concerned or worried that even though people are waking up, like most of them still stay within the general paradigm. They don't really stray too far because doing your own research is, uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of devotion. Yes. And it's way easier just to sit there and binge watch, you know, the Mandalorian or you know, whatever, I, or, or was it Yellowstone or whatever show is out there right now? 
And it's a way easier just to sit and do that. And it's why it's easy for a lot of people to kind of get into this, this rut where they're just, yeah, listening to what other people say, I guess. Well, here we go. What's interesting is people know or are familiar with Paul's writings in the New Testament. And I'm like, what about, how come it seems, and myself included from, well, not now, um, yeah, how much is Yahushua is directly quoted in the New Testament? Look at Matthew. I mean, it is full of what Yahushua is saying. So, again, we go right to, we don't need to heal Paul. Here's Yahushua. And people, what I'm getting at is people, I think, forget that, gloss that over, or, like, don't remember that, yeah, Yahushua is speaking directly to, is quoted directly in the New Testament. But we exactly. always, yeah. And something else I want to add to that is, you know, when, for instance, uh, my Shabbat group meeting, you know, there was a comment of, you know, how, how do you know that you're not in a cult? <laughs> and my my statement is, well, if if I'm in a meeting with other people and I facilitate the meeting and I am encouraging everybody to read the scriptures we're going through and studying and everybody to input and discuss this and all I am doing is adding to the conversation you know my knowledge what I know and everyone else is doing the same so when you when you're in a round table of discussion on the scriptures uh, that is very uh, against what a cult leader would want <laughs> would want their people to do. They they that's the opposite. Uh, getting them involved and getting them to uh, more or less add their input. You're going to want to lead them and tell them what it's saying and so forth. So you know, the, so that goes back to supporting the whole mentality of a one person teaching and telling you everything. So if you don't, if you have a person that is running a group and, and they're more or less uh, commanding it all, I mean, yeah, you're going to have people that's going to say some dumb things or, or maybe not dumb, but um, uh, uh, things that are going against the whole, the whole reason why you're there. There's going to be the, the wolves there, but uh, you're going to have people ask a lot of questions that don't know. And so there's going to be a, points of learning and so forth but to the point is if you have a person there that's leading everybody and basically making people feel stupid or where they they don't want to ask questions then that's suspect so i just want to throw that out there for people that are listening and keep that keep that in mind when you do find groups and you are fellowshipping with them Noel, I have a question for you on, on a different topic. So I'm, sure. pretty, I'm pretty fascinated with um, finding out more about maybe the Israel of the Bible is not uh, <laughs> where I was born. <laughs> so I was wondering if you have uh, pointers, you know, like any resources, any interesting articles or videos that you came across um, on this journey? 
Well, okay, I, I don't at present. And this is one of the... Uh, if I come across some, I'll, I'll give it to you. Was Aronon saying in his latest video that he thought maybe Europe or something? Someone was sharing that with me. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't seen it, so I can't no. say. Okay, he wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is something that I was thinking about actually all day today. And it's been driving me crazy because yes. I may I may never know. And I, I feel like there's things that... Uh, okay, so here's where I'm at. There are things that Yahuwah is revealing to us in, in, in mass number. And they come in these... Um, they come in these stages, like the the return to Torah was something that is generally thought there was a huge explosion around two thousand and nine. Generally, now there have been people who that have been messianic Torah followers, uh, non Jewish, you know, just Torah uh, messianic followers, probably always. Like th there's ne that's never been broken, and I've I've talked to people that were, uh, you know, doing it in the fifties, sixties, so on and so forth. But recently, there was a huge explosion of it, a part of which I'm a part of, and probably almost everybody, if not everybody here. And then, of course, in 2015, uh, the Flat Earth came along. A huge revelation from the Most High that our realm was not a you know spinning globe hurtling through a vacuum of space, right? Now, the, the, flat, the flat Earth led me to Torah, as it probably did most people here. Yes. And and that, again, so those are two revelations. I highly suspect that the Millennial Kingdom, if this is legitimate, that it's another revelation, that it's going to be a wildfire and take off. And it, I'm getting to, I'm not avoiding your question, I'm, I'm getting to it. Um, and I was telling my administrators yesterday that there are many things I could be writing on. There are many different topics I could be writing on. The reason I've been really pushing this recently, and I'm going to be pushing it harder and harder and harder, and it's draining me spiritually and physically, by the way. Like, I am drained. And I could use a lot of people's prayer. Okay. But I, I have been seeing people come in. I have been seeing... Okay, so Rob Skiba said, back in, back in 2015, when he started announcing that he was going to be... In the spring of 2015, he announced he was looking into this flat earth thing. He was laughed. He was ridiculed. He was just... I mean... Like, get off the stage, dude. Like, he thought his entire life was over. He was so upset, he basically hung it all up. He tossed the flat earth out. He's like, I'm not even going to look into this anymore. He took down his website, and suddenly this email came through. And it was a guy who was, uh, it was like an atheist. And he started reading Skiba's investigation of the flat earth, and he realized that there was a creator, there was a God, and he was coming to the truth. And when Skiba saw that, he's like, this is worth it. This is worth it for that one guy. And then, of course, he sees from there all this fruit coming out of it, right? Well, the same thing is happening with the Millennial Kingdom. I am seeing a lot of spiritual pushback from people who hate the Torah, who don't want anything to do with it. But I've been seeing several people just over the last three weeks come to me and say, I am, uh, I am so interested in what you're saying about the Millennial Kingdom that I don't even know what the Torah, I didn't know what the Torah was. I started look. I started hearing you talk about it. I see that it is Yahuwah's instructions and righteousness is His law in heaven, and I am going to start learning about it, and I want to follow it. And I'm like, that's good fruit. We are we are discussing yes. something that is bringing many people to the truth 
of who the creator is or Yahuwah the Most High and his son Yahusha and what they do. And so that is this is kind of like I feel like a revelation that it is it is Yah opening people's eyes, at least to the fact that history is a lie, we've been lied to about all this kind of stuff, and we're trying to dig through and figure this out stuff out. So getting back to Israel, I have a strong inclination that whatever we're being told about Israel, it's a lie. Okay, I I can't explain it. I have I have a gut feeling. I have things I've seen that you know I don't I I are red flags to me. I can't explain it right now. I don't. What I can't tell you. See, everyone. The the, the thing is, is that you have to understand is what people are really saying when Israel is not the real country. Is they're saying all the maps are wrong. They're all wrong. Right. Think about it like this. If Israel was really, say, North America, it means Egypt is probably, what, Central America, South America? It means that not even Egypt is correct. It means that Babylon isn't correct, everything, right? Everything, right. Sumeria, yeah, Mesopotamia, right. everything. Right, and that's the thing. So, and, and that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. Like, I'm at a point where I have a reason to doubt the official narrative that we are being lied to about this. I just don't know what the solution is. I really don't. Um, and it's so that's kind of where I'm at this kind of weird bipolar um, kind of boundary marker because I'm kind of going like a, a Red Rover, Red Rover tug of war back and forth because like right now I'm researching the Gog Magog invasion. And I'm like, well, do I go by the official maps? You know what am I? What am I going with here? How am I researching this? How am I finding out who's responsible for the Gog Magog invasion, where they came from? If I can't even pinpoint where Israel is, right? So, so those, the, the thought, the thought that I've been having, you know, the fir my my first reaction was I had like a knee jerk reaction. Of course, I mean, <laughs> I was born there and raised there, you know, and I was um, so invested emotionally in that country. Um, but then, you know, I took a step back in the last couple of weeks, and I've been thinking about it and. Um, the the mentor that is bugging me is this. I'm looking at Europe. It's it's infested with magnificent architecture. Okay, magnificent that we cannot even recreate today. Okay. Oh, what's and a, what, so, I'm, I'm sorry. What is the architecture you're looking at? I just I missed that. The, in Europe, uh, the architecture oh, is yeah, magnificent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm thinking. It makes sense that that architecture, you know, the Gothic architecture is actually a millennial, kin millennial kingdom architecture. And then I'm thinking, I grew up in Israel and I'm telling you there is nothing, <laughs> nothing like what you see in Europe. So then the next thought that I, I have is, okay, so you, Yeshua came back uh, and instead of coming back, to Israel, he went back to Europe. Like, I mean, what? <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all. I mean, he was supposed to come back to Israel, right? So, so where is all the architecture in Israel? There is nothing. You cannot find this magnificent. We have a few, you know, just like um, nothing, nothing like what you see in Europe. Yeah, so... Uh... 
what's interesting about Europe, it, I would I would be interested to look at the boundaries of the tribes according to uh, Yasharel and see if they actually can be matched up with Europe. That would be really interesting. Keep in mind, for example, like look at look, here's this a uh, really simple get you started investigation. Look at the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan was the first of four yeah, d right. Or Sweden, right? And they, they yeah. used to be known. They used to be known as Sweden. Well, it's kind of interesting because they were the first. That was the first tribe to forsake its inheritance. They moved further up north to like Og uh, territory, um, and there. And of course, Sweden and Sweden and Denmark uh, or Denmark are up in the north of Europe. So right there, that's just a potential tip off to well, maybe what if that really was right. I don't know. I can't answer yeah. that question. Um, and the other kind of missing component here that may be a revelation of Yah and on perfect timing is this moon map thing. I think this moon map, if this is legitimate, it is pivotal to understanding, like putting the puzzle pieces together. The people who have been pushing the moon map have been stating that, you know, they've been kind of connecting with the prog. Uh, clock and saying that it's it's you know goes through the ages and that it's all ice and cold and darkness up there. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's not close the case on this this quickly. If we're just figuring out that the moon is a map of the realm, let's not just say those continents up there are just cold, dark, you know, ice, and that nobody is living on it. Because Scripture tells us that the children of Yasharel and Deuteronomy would be scattered to the four corners of the earth, to the four furthest corners of heaven. And then we read in Revelation where Hasatan goes to the four corners, or depending on your translation, the four quarters of the earth to deceive. So it tells me that if this earth has four quarters that he has control of, it means it has to be populated up there. Maybe it's yeah. maybe there's maybe there's a second sun. I don't know. And I know I, you know you're not huge on the Targum, but I think the Targum does say there's two suns. I need to look more into that. Um, mm. and and so. So well, I don't want to. There's a false sun that would make sense. That if there's another, if there's a more land that Hasatan, the enemy, is in control of, that there's maybe another false. Like there's a goes into the binary again. Well, well how do we? System. Well, this is where I'm just saying that like we're so early in this investigation that I don't even want to go that route and say there is a false sun. What if there is a two legitimate suns? Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe. Here's just well, that's what I was saying. Blue light, red light. It's not. Here's, it's necessarily false, but ones of the. But it's okay. Uh, well, let me. Also let me goes to that moon map was maybe a, a picture in time before, right? Um, but it what it does whether how accurate it is to now. But what it does again, what I think you're show, hinting at is this is where I get it. When we think of where the center is of the world. Usually people point to Israel. People are pointing to the Middle East. Even though we know center, if we look at a, another map, we point to the north. So, again, where when you look at um, globes or maps, like you don't always have the United States in the center. I guess if, if maybe the Chinese, they put China in the center. But this was another thing of, again, I think confusing us of, I, I really want to say a direction. Where is north? Where is east? Where is south? Where is west? But also, I think um, things aren't, and why Europe kind of makes sense, it's not that far from 
the the North Pole, so to say. It's not that far, you know, Denmark, and you go into Scandinavia. You're already seeing the lights, um, the northern yeah, lights. Okay, well, I think we have like an artificial circle that they, they, you know, when they signed the Antarctic um, a treaty, they literally drew an artificial circle and none of us can go beyond it. Yeah. We, so we don't even know what's beyond it. Well, here's my thought. Let me, this is where I was going with my thought. Okay. And I, I, I look, I'm just using my imagination here because I'm saying, I understand there's YouTube videos putting up these theories out there on the different suns and the, the dark sun, the light sun, the ice, all this kind of stuff. But what if, what if there is, um, the land up there is populated with people, just regular people like you and me, okay? They know nothing about us. We know nothing about them. Now, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm just moving the goalie, note, uh, goalie net at this point. But what if the true land of Yasharel is really up there on this totally other continent that we can never dream or imagine? And Hasatan, he's got to give us the law. He's got to give us scripture. He has to. So he's like, well, they're going to start asking questions if they're reading this book and going, where's Israel? It doesn't exist. Is it imaginary? Is it fictional? And so he's got to just, here you go. Here's your plot of land right here. Like, what if it's all fabricated? What if everything here is fabricated to look like something that really took place on in another existence? Again, I know this is kind of crazy talk, but I'm just saying. No, at this making point, sense. Making I'm just sense. saying, I, I just saying let's, let's not close this investigation. Like, this moon map is coming along at the perfect time. And the possibilities are almost endless with what yeah. we could be looking at. That's that's all I'm saying with this. So let's look at every possible scenario and not write any out or just stick with what, what this one YouTube channel is saying. Um, like, let's look at all of it. Yeah, like Lemuria. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to have an entire other continent that they know nothing about us. You know, we just never send ships that way. It could just be, yeah, it could be so hidden in plain sight almost that yeah i totally think so there could be other continents out there this could explain yeah. where uh this could explain where actors go when they are suicided or killed or whatever and they go off to the other continent the other land that we always wonder where these you know private islands are it could explain so much it could explain the time travel yep. photos yeah. And, yeah and think about america again again they didn't know it existed right <laughs> So that it, it goes in line to what we know through the lie of history that, okay, they've done this before. So what would yeah. you think it, it's not happening right now also? It's, it's totally viable because if they control all of the uh, transportation, especially air and, and sea, of where and, where and when you can go, you know, everything, quote, has to be uh, approved. You got to get, you know, check with the FAA if you're going to even fly your own airplane. And you got to tell them where and when you're going and at what altitude and get it all approved before you even do it. And uh, and then same with the ships. Ships got all those docks and so forth. I mean, you might get away probably better with a boat or ship and, and doodling out on your own. But... Uh, obviously you're going to run yourself at risk at days and maybe months at sea to find other land and then again you may never come back but 
it, 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 with that kind of control, it does make it very difficult for um, uh, the average person to explore and, and know those things. Yeah, good stuff, guys. <laughs>